Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. I... Uh, I am glad you're here this morning, and, um, and there's a lot of you here this morning, and uh, that's, that is good to see. Um, I wonder if it's because it's more than three degrees outside, and you thought, you know, today would be a good day. It's too muddy to do anything outdoors, but it'd be a good day to come sit in an old, ugly warehouse, and so I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to continue on this morning in our sermon series uh, on called Far As the Curse is Found, where, we looking at, where we're looking at the story of God and how he makes himself known, and not only how far the curse has gone, but the grand story of scripture that God will, everything that the curse has affected, which is everything, God is going to, he, he has started the fight back, right? Um, and he will claim every inch of ground that was taken. Uh, and so this is the story uh, that sees this unfold. Um, and today we're going to be in the story of the Exodus. Uh, one of the things that I have learned a lot about over the past year is just how different a face can look with a mask on or off, right? Um, so we'll, we'll give the setting because I'm sure you've been there too. You see somebody in the grocery store and you're like, hey, that could, that is, is that, I, hmm, and then like you're walking up and you do the weird thing where you like, you make eye contact and you look away and then you kind of make eye contact and you're looking, if they're looking at you too. And then at times, like if you're both looking at each other and it just gets too intense, you're like, oh, they're going to think I'm a creeper. Uh, just at this point, just say it, you know? And you're like, Phil, Phil Connors. Um, <clears throat> a friend of mine who's, he's a big dude. Like, and I thought surely he's that, that that's got to be him. Cause I don't know anybody else that looks like him and. Uh, I followed him around the store a little bit, and I thought, you know, I'm going to wise up a little bit. I'm going to text him. And I just said, hey, man, are you at Sam's? And he said, no. And I was like, <laughs> took off just in time. Um, I will say this. It is, it is a solid argument for, for everybody in Gotham who could not put it together that Bruce Wayne and Batman were the same people. <laughs> because you, seriously. But then you're like... Okay, all right, I get it now. I can see it. Uh, that story doesn't have nearly as many holes as it did before the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> but it's hard to recognize somebody when you can't see all of them. And that's just when going on appearance. When you're talking about persona, personality, the public persona and the private persona and who we are in different relationships. And it can be really hard to get to know somebody. The book of Exodus, what the book of Exodus is primarily about uh, this is God making himself known. We're, gonna, we're not going to deal with this. This is God making himself known to his people. More than he has. His attributes are going to be revealed, not only in the law. We'll get to the law next week and how the law is actually basically, it, it is an invitation to know God who, and who he is, but also by what he does. 
Last week, uh, if you were here, we, we looked at uh, the story of Genesis, which was God is good and God is sovereign and he is going to build his people. And then we followed that with three conjunctions, but, and, and so. He is sovereign, he is gonna build his people, but that is not an excuse. It's not an excuse for sin. It's not an excuse for injustice. It's not an excuse for indifference. And God is sovereign, he's good, he's gonna build his people, and... That takes the pressure off. Follower of Jesus, you are freed from being Jesus. You bear his image, but you can't save the world. So, so what we looked at last week, and if you were here, I gave an assignment. Anybody remember what the assignment was? George. I think it's George. I can't tell. He's got a mask on. Um, to, to look over Hebrews 12 and 2. So, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated. His work is done. He is now seated at the right hand of the, of the Father. So, go. Do. Um, but one of the things that we talked about last week with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is they didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about God. They didn't know if he was more powerful than the Egyptian gods or the other gods or Abimelech's God. They didn't know what he was all about. They had pagan worship in their blood, in their history, and that was kind of all they knew. And so Abraham followed God when he said go. Abraham went. But then from there, he didn't know. He didn't have uh, the, the, the Bible app was not totally done yet at that point, and so he couldn't get all of Genesis 1 through 11 uh, downloaded, and, and he, just, he was kind of in the, in the dark on that. And so Abraham trusts God. Late in his life, he has Isaac. Isaac's life is, is actually kind of meh, um, but late in Isaac's life, he uh, has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and it's the older who will serve the younger. And so God lifts up Jacob, and Jacob is just kind of he is like, he's a salesy kind of, he's a manipulator and he tries to, he both bests and gets bested by his, his uncle Laban uh, in a sheep deal and a wife deal and like it's a bad thing and Jacob marries Leah who he doesn't really like and uh, Rachel who he doesn't really like and Leah who he really likes and no, flip those. And um, anyway, and then they have 12 kids between the two of them and, and the three of them, and then his 10th, anyway, Joseph is his favorite child, and so there's all kind of family dynamics happening here, which is crazy, and then Joseph is going to be saved through betrayal, trial, suffering, prison, false accusations, and continued faith. Joseph brings his whole family to Egypt, and by God's providence, Egypt, if you remember the blessing given to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Joseph finds blessing in the land of Egypt, and God blesses Egypt, and Egypt becomes the most powerful nation in the world through the, through the dreams of Joseph. And then over time, uh, Pharaoh's change, the king changes, Jacob's family gets large, they become intimidating, and instead of the Egypt's blessing them, they begin to curse them, and they enslave the people of Israel, for 400 years. Just to put in per perspective, 
America is not 200 years old yet. 400 years. America's 100 America is not 300, it's 250. God calls people into ministry who don't do math. America is 200 and... Just to put it in perspective, that's a long time. Don't go off the notes. All right. And that brings us to this week. The story of the Exodus, what what I want to do this morning through the story of the Exodus is I want us to behold this God who makes himself known in the story of the Exodus. I'm going to tell the story a little bit, but really what I want us to see is what are the attributes of God that he makes known in this story? The story is very familiar. If you're not familiar with the story of Exodus, there's there's lots of good movies out there. Prince of Egypt is fantastic. Um, but I, wanna, I want us to just look at a few things that, are, that, that we see that are revealed uh, as God delivers and rescues his people. First, that this is a God who hears his people. He's not indifferent. He's not cold. He's not absent. He hears the cries of his people. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25 and into chapter 3. I think we'll have these behind us here. And I am going to give you an assignment at the end of today to, get, to read Exodus 1 through 15. But... Follow along with me as we go here. Exodus 2, 23 through 25, uh, during those many days, this is after Moses has left, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then into Exodus 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. We see God's providential care. He cares for Moses. That's a a very famous story. Rescues Moses. Though Moses is a Hebrew child, he's raised in the Pharaoh's home. Moses then sees the taskmasters and their abuse and their oppression over his people. And Moses takes action and he actually kills one of the soldiers, one of the guards, and then he flees to Midian. And it's during this time that the king has changed hands. There's a new Pharaoh. And the cries of the people have gone up, and God hears them, God remembers his covenant, and then he begins to enter the story of his people. Every other religion, every other worldview is about our ability to ascend, our ability to work hard and overcome, our ability to, any other worldview for a pagan God is about our obedience and how well we do and our sacrifices that we will ascend to the approval of this God. In the, in the story of scripture alone, in the God of, 
of Israel alone do we see God hears the cries of his people and he comes down and enters into the story of his people. Something else that's going to come into play as we continue to go. God does not enter into the success of his people. He hears their story in their heartbreak and their humility uh, and in their brokenness. Now, this might seem old hat for us. Well, of course, God cares about the lowly and, the, and the, the hurting. But this is not normal. This is not normal for pagan religions. In most places, you are known, gods were... Uh, it was the greatness of the people, the strength of the military, the strength of the land, and how successful you were. That was basically how successful your God was. That's, that's pagan worship. And most of those gods also happen to coincide with kings or pharaohs or whatever. And we've seen this, we've, we've mentioned this over and over again. Gods were more about your success, your military conquests, and the power of your people. The Egyptians, their gods were obviously doing pretty well because the Egyptians were the most powerful nation on the planet. Um, before, we, before we planted the church, uh, I worked uh, at Edward Jones. I was an investment representative. And I know, I know how to do it. I learned a lot, and it was good, but that was not for me. Um, and uh, so I, I can, whatever. Um, but one of the questions that we had, or one of the things that I struggle with is, as an investment representative, what kind of car do you drive? Have you ever thought about that? If you drive like a really nice car, people could go, well, he drives a nice car. Obviously, he's doing well. He's, he's done well for people, and they trust him, and he's doing well. Or they could go, this guy's just ripping people off. He's just in it to get, to get money. Well, then do you drive a junk heap? You drive a junk heap, people are going to be like, well, I'm not trusting him with, his, with my money. He can't even handle his own money. Like, what? what? I'm not going to do that. Or they may go, this guy is, he, he will drive a car till it's dead in the ground and he's conservative with his money and I, I'll trust him, right? What kind of car do you drive? You're known in your success or your failures, what, what vibe are you giving? Hence the Toyota Camry, right? It's the perfect middle of the road, it's great for everybody. And, um, in the ancient world, the power of the God was known, it was directly cor- correlated to the power of the nation more directly to the king. And what we see from the very beginning is that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he doesn't hitch himself up to the most powerful nation in the world. In fact, when we get into this, it's almost like he spends a book and a half stacking the cards up against him as much as he possibly can. And then at the darkest moment, in their most weak and vulnerable state, God says, okay, it's time. You're going to see who I am. God hears the cries of the humble. God does not rest on your success. The voice of God is not one that says, I am leaving it up to you to be overcomer. We often attach God to, if God would just save the great stories. That's not the story of scripture. God comes to the humble and the broken and the hurting. This is how this is set up. And so we see that God hears the cries of his people. The second thing we see is that God has a name. I'll say another thing that we see is that God has a name. And this is pretty incredible. Exodus chapter three, verses one through six, and then 13 and 14 
says this, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And I love the understatement of this next sentence. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see that great sight. It's probably filled with a little more fear and trembling than that. Why, uh, why the bush is not burned. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. He said, do not come near. Take, off your sand- take the sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then going down to verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And here again, and I'll, this, this is the word of the Lord, and I'll invite you every time to say, thanks be to God. In this encounter, Moses engages this bush that was both burning but not consumed, and God gives him instruction, approach me with caution. This is probably, and he says, take off your shoes. This is the portrayal of the holiness of God. Fire is used often throughout scripture to give this portrayal of, of holiness. Fire, when it's, when, it, when it is properly approached, it can be warmth, it can be light, it can be comfort. When fire is approached carelessly, it can be incredibly destructive. And this is perhaps, I think, one of the most appropriate ways when we talk about God's holiness. Moses can't just approach God casually. This is not a thing that you can do. God is holy. And so we have to approach him with care. We don't have many um, people or positions in our day that we feel the need to approach with caution or care, right? We don't have kings, very few people in our world that can just snap their fingers and like take your life from you. So especially if you're behind a keyboard, we have no fear whatsoever, (laughs) right? Um, But there are certain positions that will still strike fear, potentially. Perhaps a principal of an elementary school, uh, especially back in the day when you may be called to the principal's office for, I don't know, like maybe being in band and accidentally opening the spit valve of your trombone on the girl's shoe next to you and you didn't think there was much in it and you were just trying to be funny and lo and behold, there was a whole lot in it and it got all over her sock and her mom having to be a fifth grade teacher, or something hypothetically like that, and then the principal calls you down to the office and you have the fear of the Lord. You don't walk in and call him by his first name. God, like fire, like a king, like a principal, is to to be approached with proper fear and trembling. And yet, and yet, at this point, God gives Moses his intimate first name. It's incredible. My, uh, my wife and I, um, 
we started blazing a trail through, we've, we've, we're pretty much, we've finished Netflix, um, but we've, we've been blazing a trail through uh, West Wing, and we were really into it, and then Netflix canceled it on Christmas Eve. I, I, yeah. Anyway, um, so we had to finish it. So now we got HBO, HBO Max to finish it. It's all beside the point. There's an episode early on in the first season, I think, where President Bartlett is given the opportunity to commute a death sentence against a drug dealer. And this is kind of the first taste that he has of like, the power of life and death are in my hands. And he's weighing that with a lot of anguish. Uh, and, um, and the man is scheduled to be executed at midnight. And so he's struggling and wrestling with convictions. And he calls his childhood priest, Father Kavanaugh, to the Oval Office. And as Father Kavanaugh comes in, he says, he says, I don't, I don't know how to address you. Would you prefer Jed or Mr. President? President Bartlett says, to be honest, I prefer Mr. President. That's fine. Well, you understand why, right? Do I need to know why? Well, I mean, it's not ego. I didn't think it was. And then Bartlett says this, there's, there's certain decisions I have to make while I'm in this room. Do I send troops into harm's way? Which fatal disease gets the most research money? And it's helpful in those situations not to think of yourself as the man, but as the office. Moses asked God kind of a similar question. People are going to ask me, who is this God? And God actually kind of goes the other way. I'm not going to give you the official title. I'm going to give you my name. Yahweh. I am. I am that I am. And in his name, in that name Yahweh, in that name I am, there is power, there is might. We see the unchangeability of God. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus, which I made a joke this morning, is different from your cousin Cletus, uh, once said... He once, he's famous for making this statement, you can never step into the same river twice, right? Because why? When you step into the river once and pull your foot out and you step into it again, it's changed. The river has flowed. There's different things. If it's the Missouri River, there's different tree branches and different body parts that are coming down than, than were the first time you stepped in. And, and um, they're floating past and we change and rivers change and the world was created. Everything is in constant change. I never am. I am always becoming. I'm different now than when I started, even started preaching this morning. We are constantly changed. Everything in this world is constantly changing, either becoming more or less, except God. He is. He is constant to the humble, to the oppressed, to the hurting and the broken, to the poor in spirit, this is glorious news. This is glorious news. God's mercy will never run out. His grace is never ending. His forgiveness is overflowing. His compassion is relentless. And this is glorious news. To the proud, to the haughty, to the self-serving, to the condescending, to the oppressor, this is not good news. 
God will never change. He will never cease to be God. He will never be taken off of his throne. We can't tear him off it. Either our pride in our religion or our irreligion, God will frustrate the plans of the proud forever and ever. Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow. For the humble, for the worshiper of God, that's a glorious day. For the proud, for the one that wants to be in charge of their own life, that will be a gloriously frustrating and angering day. God gives his name. I am. We are always becoming, but God is. We also see that God is not just the God over Israel, but he is the almighty God over all nations, something we may take for granted. We think God, well, of course, he's God over all nations. That was not the case in ancient, uh, in ancient religions. You had the God of every region, every country had your God, and God of Israel is unique in the fact that not only is he God over Israel and defending them, but he is also the God over Israel inviting other nations to trust him. God has come down, he's entered the story of his people, but it's been 400 years, and not only have a whole lot of generations died in slavery and captivity, but also if you think about it, it's been 400 years of uh, the Egyptian public education system informing the people of Israel about their gods. And so they probably have some whispers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they've also been fed a whole lot of the Egyptian God, uh, the, the various Egyptian gods, and this is what the gods are over. And so when God enters into their story, he's not only making himself known to his people, he's also making himself known to the Egyptians, and then anybody and everybody in the surrounding regions that will hear the story that will say, ah, the God of Israel, don't mess with him. And so what God does in the plagues is he systematically destroys and demonstrates his power and authority over every other God of the Egyptians. The first plague, water turned to blood. God turns the Nile to blood. Hapi is the Egyptian God of the Nile and the water bearer. Heket is the Egyptian goddess of fertility water and renewal. She had the head of a frog. She was often depicted with the head of a frog. The second plague is the infestation of frogs coming up out of the Nile. The third plague, lice from the dust of the earth, which demonstrates his power over Jeb, the Egyptian god of earth, who was the god over the dust of the earth. Kepri, the Egyptian god of creation and the movement of the sun and rebirth, often depicted with the head of a fly. And so God swarms and overwhelms Egypt's, Egypt with flies. Hathor, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing these names right, by the way. You just go with me here. Hathor was the Egyptian goddess of love and protection, usually depicted with the head of a cow. The fifth plague is the death of cattle and livestock. Isis, the Egyptian goddess of medicine and peace, the sixth plague, ashes turned to boils and sores. And the seventh plague, hail rains down from heaven in the form of fire, warring against, demonstrating his authority over Nut or Newt, 
the Egyptian goddess of the sky. The eighth plague, locusts sent from the sky, demonstrating his power over Seth, the god of storms and disorder. Ra, an Egyptian god that many are familiar with, the god of the sun, and the ninth plague, three days of darkness, God demonstrating his power and authority over Ra. And then finally, the tenth plague, death of the firstborn, reaches even to the house of Pharaoh, the bright and morning star. God demonstrates for his people and for the Egyptians and for all nations that he is the one true God. He is more powerful than any Egyptian God, even the bright morning star, the Pharaoh himself. And finally, the last and perhaps the most helpful and hopeful characteristic of God, he is the redeemer. He is the rescuer. He rescues his people from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is not only what he does, but this is who he is. He is the rescuer. What is more, again, more profound here, that God actually enters into the suffering and the story of his people. I am, I am sure that God could like Thanos the Egyptians. Did I get that right? All right. See? I can do it. Um, I'm sure he could just snap his fingers and, and make them gone, but that's not what he does. That's not his desire. He wants to demonstrate his power, but his hope and his desire is to know his people and to make known his goodness and mercy to all the peoples of the earth. So he actually enters into the story, and in his deliverance of his people, God foreshadows the depth of his love, what he will eventually sacrifice to make himself known. In Exodus 12, it tells the story of God's plan of redemption. He tells Moses to have every household get a lamb, a perfect lamb without blemish. And if, you, if your household cannot afford a perfect lamb, you can go in with a neighbor. And to take a lamb and to slaughter it at twilight on the 10th day of the month and to use hyssop branches, which was a cleansing branch, and spread the, door, spread the blood over the doorposts of every household. And when the angel of judgment, the angel of death, would enact the final plague on the households of Egypt, those whose houses who are covered by the blood will be passed over. God's judgment was poured out on Pharaoh and on Egypt. I gotta stop moving. Um, and I, I wanna, I wanna this, is, this is good to keep in mind, okay? Because th there's th lots of questions in here. But this is good to keep in mind. The people of Egypt, though they also experience the judgment, it's not as if they are innocent bystanders. Even in Israel's history, what we see is the wickedness of the people often follows the wickedness of the king. So God's judgment is poured out on them. However, what may not be as obvious or known, it, it, it is fairly widely held and believed that there were a number of Egyptians who saw the power of Israel's God and actually converted and walked with the Israelites out of Egypt. God, and, and I think it's in chapter 13, God gives provisions for who can take the Passover. If you're an outsider, if you're a foreigner dwelling among the people of God, you cannot take the, uh, you are not allowed to take 
the Passover. However, if you have been circumcised, which is the mark of conversion, no matter where you are from, even if you're an outsider, you are welcome to feast at the celebration of the Passover when it's being, when it, when, uh, when it's being partaken. It's believed that there were a number of Egyptians that saw the power of God and said, I now fear with awe and wonder the God of Israel. And not only does God spare his judgment on those who are covered by the blood of the lamb, but here he even causes the Egyptians to like go into their own cupboards, pull out their finest dishware and jewelry and come out and give it to the people of Israel as now they're like pushing them. Take my stuff and get out of the country. God continues to provide and protect, guide his people through a cloud by day and a fire by night. He establishes them as a people with wealth taken from the Egyptians that they will then turn into another God, but we'll get into that in a couple chapters here. One of the most universal questions, or perhaps rather the universal frustrations about God has to do with this idea of suffering, right? Maybe you've asked it yourself. I have, or maybe a friend has come to you and asked, how, how can you believe in a good God when there is so much suffering in the world, right? Everybody has heard that question or, or maybe even asked that question. Here's the deal, and we've talked about this before. You, you, let's just say God doesn't exist, all right? There's still suffering. It doesn't wipe out suffering. Here's what it does wipe out, the hope of redemption, the hope of rescue. It removes the hope of deliverance. And this is why scripture, this story in particular, has been the hope of many, many, many oppressed peoples. The hope of redemption, God hearing the cries of the oppressed and those who suffer. Redemption is the ultimate answer to the problem of suffering. But here, as God comes down to be with his people, it's actually God entering into the suffering. So not only is, do we have the hope of redemption, but we also have a God who understands. He's not aloof. He's not removed. He's not indifferent to our suffering. He fully participates in the suffering of his people. He's not sitting up in his lazy boy drinking hot chocolate by the fireplace, tired of being bugged by people wanting stuff. He is intimately tied to the story of his people. And and this is incredible. I think we, it's easy to rattle off the tongue. God became man, dwelled among us, was crucified, died, and was buried, right? Jesus is our hope. The glory of heaven entered into the suffering of man, into its great injustice, into the pain, even into alienation from the Father for a time. The true and better spotless lamb whose sacrificial blood covers the household of all who humbly put their hope and trust in him. Jesus, the righteous and perfect atonement whose blood covers our sin that we might be redeemed, that we might be rescued, that we might be reconciled to the God of all creation. Romans 8, Paul puts it this way, what shall we say then to these things? 
If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who could bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who could separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We, regarded, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in every single one of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is God who comes to rescue the humble, the oppressed, the outsider, the wounded, the poor in spirit. God is the hero of the story. And for those whose sin has brought them to a place of humility and repentance, it is the same God that offers grace and forgiveness and restoration. I want to give you an assignment for this week, okay? It's longer. It's going to take more. I would like for you to read the first 14 chapters, actually 14 and a half chapters of Exodus. Finish with the song that Moses and his people sing in uh, Exodus 15. And read it as a story. I'm not saying story is made up, but read it as a story. And when you run into questions, you're like, well, I don't know if it, is that right or is that wrong? Put that aside. I want you to read it as the God who comes to rescue. Here's the deal. I was raised to read the Bible through the lens of Paul and a systematic approach. A systematic approach basically says, this is what we believe about God, and you take certain verses. This is what we believe about man, you take certain verses. This is what we believe about sin, you take certain verses. Now hear me, I don't think systematic approach is, is wrong necessarily, but it's very easy to pick and choose what you want to see and what you don't want to see. Early American church, uh, the early American white church used a whole lot of verses to oppress people. They left out a whole lot, and they approached it with picking and choosing. That's the way I learned how to read the Bible. And again, it's not necessarily bad, but what was dangerous for me was to pick the things that I didn't necessarily struggle with as much. And I had turned this glorious God, and his rescue was for those who basically agreed with me in right belief and right doctrine. And I want to make clear again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Doctrine and belief are very important things. But when you read through the Bible chronologically, when you read through the story as it unfolds, it's gonna, you can't pick and choose. You can't divide it up as much into places that you like and places that you don't like. You're gonna wrestle with stuff. And when we read the Bible chronologically, God becomes the hero of those who are powerless to save themselves. That's how he sets it up. One of the problems that grew with me in my approach of right belief and right doctrine was that it had ceased to be a way for me to humbly know God and it had become my prideful way of deciding who was in and who wasn't. 
who got to be rescued and who didn't. To read it chronologically and still approach it from a systematic standpoint at times has humbled me greatly. God hears the cries of the oppressed and the poor and the outcast. And certainly he is with those who, is, who are with them. And those, God hears the cries of the oppressed, whether by our own sin or by the sins of others. God enters into the story. God suffers with and for his people. He defeats every enemy. Did you notice in Romans 8? All the enemies that cannot separate us from the love of Christ, even death itself. He is more powerful than all other gods. And while he is completely holy, he still invites us to know him intimately and to trust him as the hero of our story. Let's pray. God, the this, this story that is told through Scripture um, You are not a God that is bound by my understanding. You are not a God that is bound by the ways that I can fit you into categories. Uh, But we see your work and we see the way that you do things and the way that you make your mercy known, that you actually hear, you care. And humility doesn't automatically save us, but pride blinds our eyes from even seeing our need for you. So I pray that you would humble our hearts and our minds to see the God who rescues, to see the God who has made himself known, and that we would trust you, that we would walk with you, that our minds and hearts would be steadied and stayed on you, that you would continue to guide your people. God, thank you that you made yourself known. Thank you that you didn't wear a mask. We didn't have to guess. You have made yourself fully known. And through your word, we are able to know if, if it is you or if it is a counterfeit God. So I pray that we would see your work, know you, trust in you, even today as you will bring life out of death. We ask you that we may continue to bear witness as you continue to work in the world today for your glory and for your fame. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.